Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Ezra chapter 7, as we continue in our series of Pursuing God, Ezra chapter 7. Today I want us to look at the hand and the word of God. The hand and the, or actually the word and the hand of God. It's probably how you're seeing it on your screen there. You know, it has been cited by pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer. This quote from him, maybe you've heard it. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I want to unpack the purpose of this statement a little bit. I I never knew A.W. Tozer, but I have benefited greatly from his readings and thankful for his ministry. But this is often cited to help one consider and ask, what is most important for you in your life? What's most important for you? What centers your whole life? Is God at the center or is something else? I think it's also another way for us to ask this. What comes to mind when we think about God is is not only the most important thing about us, but otherwise is what comes to mind when you think about God. Is it from his word or is it sourced from somewhere else? So when you think about God, do you think about what his word has revealed to us about him or do you think about what somebody else has just told you about him those are the kinds of things that I want us to look at today because we're going to look at at God's centering a life and how do you know that God is the center of your life and and what do you see what do you experience what do you hear on a daily basis when God is the center of your life. These are the things that we look at today in our Pursuing God series when we look at a life that is marked by the word and by the hand of God. And to see this life that we're going to look at in Ezra chapter 7 is for it to point us to look and see the person and work of Jesus Christ and who he is and how it is that he works for us and to see what it is like for a life to be lived with him At the center. I want you to walk away understanding this today that the hand of God rests on the life that is centered on the Word of God to serve God's purpose for His glory in the world. Ezra chapter 7, go there with me. You have a Bible, turn there if you're on an electronic device. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, but I'm going to skip through. I want to give you the trajectory of the chapter without reading each verse for the sake of time. Ezra 7, 1 begins, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, And he begins to walk through the son of, the son of, the son of. Look with me there. Through three verses until we come to verse 5. He says, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest. Now pause there with me for a moment. So in the writing of chapter 7, when they introduce this man of Ezra to us, What is this telling us to have this shortened list of genealogy? It's telling us this. He was to 16, 15 greats, I guess it would be. He was the grandson of Aaron, the priest 
who served next to Moses. Now that's important historically. It's also important biblically and theologically as we'll come back to and revisit in just a moment. But continue reading with me in verse 6. Then Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And so we see here this introduction that uh, this man by the name of Ezra, who was skilled in all the law of Moses that the Lord, of Israel, the God of Israel, had given to them, He made a request of King Artaxerxes in Persia, and making that request, it tells us that the king gave him everything that it asked for. Why? Look at the last refrain of verse 6, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And so verse 7 picks up, there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was upon him. Didn't we just read that? Wasn't that just somewhere? It was. The second time we see this refrain that tells us, for the good hand of his God was up on him. In verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Pause there with me for a moment. Let me bring us up to speed historically about where we are. Chapter 7 begins roughly 60 years after the end of chapter 6 in the book of Ezra. So we're talking about roughly six years passing, and a new leader is introduced for us for the Israelite people. We know that the first wave of, uh, of, of exiles has returned to Jerusalem and Judah, and here we're about to see the second major wave led by this man named Ezra. And in the shortened genealogy that we see, there is a descendant, or that he is a descendant of Aaron. And though he was not a high priest like Aaron was, it does tell us that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And then, in the next set of verses, we learn the role that Ezra will play in this story. He goes to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who is now the king of the world, And he makes a request for him to be able to return. And Artaxerxes echoes Cyrus's original decree and Darius's confirmation of that decree that yes, you may return. Anyone can go with you. And as a matter of fact, we're going to resource the whole thing for you. How long was the journey? Well, we begin to see the length of the journey here from Babylon to Jerusalem roughly took Ezra four months and traveled over 500 miles to complete this journey. That's a long hike for y'all. I can put in a good 20 in a day if the altitude or the elevation change is not too significant. But 500 miles is gonna take some time and planning. But here's what we're told, friends. Again, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And we're provided the main thrust here of Ezra's role for God's people. Ezra committed his life to the study of God's law, to obey it and to teach it to the people. 
when we come to verses 11 through verse 26, we see what Artaxerxes' actual decree was. And I'm not going to read it here. I'll point out a few verses in just a moment. But the decree basically grants his request, all of it, and even in greater measure and blessing than maybe he originally thought could possibly happen. He says this, anybody can go back with you. I'll not, uh, I'll not prevent anyone from doing that. But as a matter of fact, I'll send my own counselors with you, which was a very typical pattern for kings to carry in their entourage in that day to carry a host six or seven of their own counselors to help them make decisions help them manage the travel and those kinds of things and so Artaxerxes sends some of his own counselors that's a major authorization from a king to a man who didn't have to matter in the king's eyes he told Ezra that once he returned he was able to investigate what was taking place in Jerusalem and Judah and find out how well the people knew and were living according to the law of Moses that he taught. And so this was what King Artaxerxes gave him the authority to do. He told him, not only are you allowed to go back, but you'll be given free will offerings by the people and that will pay uh, for your trip. That will pay for all your expenses. And as you... Uh, ornate the temple that has been rebuilt, we will fund that for you. He says, if you don't get enough resources from the people, call the king's office. We'll resource the remainder out of the treasury. But finally, there's an interesting thing that Artaxerxes does. He tells him this, not only can you investigate to find out where the people are, but I want you to establish a rule of law according to the law of Moses, not the law of Artaxerxes, the law of Moses. And I authorize you with the power to enforce this judicial system, even, even to executing the law in, in what we would consider corporal punishment today, if that is necessary. Now, that's a lot of power and a lot of authority for a king to bestow on someone that's not even from his camp, so to speak. But, but this is what Artaxerxes has given Ezra to do. You see, what's taking place here is that God is using Ezra to return to the center of his people's lives the law, the word of God, so that the word of God will be most important to them, not just in their daily life, but in their communal life as well, in the way that they live and in all that they do. Finally, verses 27 and 28 is Ezra's recognition of what the Lord has done here. Look at those verses with me. He says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now, if you remember what we've talked about throughout this, Artaxerxes it did not have a conversion experience. Artaxerxes didn't all of a sudden become a God follower, and so he wanted God's word to be the center of everyone's life. 
No, instead, the Persian Empire had a foreign policy to allow the captives of the lands that they had overthrown to continue their life. And when Babylon overthrew Jerusalem and Judah initially, theirs was to send them into dispersion throughout the whole kingdom. Well, when the Persians took over, they said, you can go home and reestablish your rule of life. To Artaxerxes, this was just the way to go. We want you to be happy so you don't get mad with us. We want you to be happy so that there's not an uprising and our our kingdom will experience peace. So don't misinterpret or misunderstand what Artaxerxes is doing. But listen rather to what Ezra is saying. What could he have said? Man, that was a phenomenal presentation when I walked into the king. I was hitting on all cylinders. I mean, it was just flowing once I got into the groove. I was in my sweet spot. And man, can you believe what he gave me? I did a great job. That's not what he said. What did he say? Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. You can only imagine that when Ezra stood in front of Artaxerxes and he began to hear the letter read and know what the king was granting to him, this wave just began to wash over him, not of Artaxerxes' greatness, but of God's greatness. Like It's like the river of the king's heart is in the hands of a God who is steering it as the psalm promises us. And surely, That's what Ezra is echoing here. The God of our fathers who put such a thing into the heart of the king to do this. Ezra said, God and only God could do this. And he extended to me his steadfast love before all the kings and his mighty officers. And then Ezra said, so I took courage from the blessing of God, because his hand was on me. Third time that phrase gets echoed. And the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Do you know why they record things three times in scriptures? Emphasis, priority, importance. When you're reading a passage and you see a word or a phrase that is repeated three times, there is a biblical weight of importance that rests upon the message that is being communicated here. And that's what Ezra is communicating to us as a book about what is transpiring upon Ezra the man's life here. You see, there are certain characteristics that distinguished Ezra for God's service. First of all, he's identified as a man who is skilled in the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? It's the first five books of the Bible in our canon of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the books that Moses is credited as being the human author of. And it basically comprised the entirety of their canon of text for Scripture in Ezra's day. And so that was the law that they had to know God. It doesn't mean he just did a lot of Bible study inherently, though he definitely did, but rather it says in all of his study, he gave himself to master the law that he was studying. A second characteristic of Ezra is that he he was distinguished as one who had set his heart to serve and to know God's law, but not just to know it, to obey it and to teach it. So we see a deeper motive in the life of Ezra here who set his heart on these things, not just his mind to attain them. 
Thirdly, it says that he was strengthened to lead others in serving because of the way his life was marked. In other words, the reason Artaxerxes gave him the authority and the power to do what he gave him to do is because of the way his life reflected the mastery of the text but also the intent and motivation that he derived from it as well. Artaxerxes recognized Ezra's distinctive characteristics such that this, you need to understand who Ezra is that not only has written this text, but that is being identified and introduced for us for the first time in the scripture here. In the Jewish tradition, Ezra is regarded as the second Moses. The second Moses. Why is that important? Well, who is Moses? Well, Moses is the man that God called to go and and appear before Pharaoh, right? And to tell Pharaoh what? God said, let my people go. And Moses said, I mean, don't get upset with me. I'm just the messenger. I'm, you know, I'm I'm just the one delivering the message, you know. And he stuttered and kind of kicked around and him hauled around and gave God every excuse that he could possibly give him for why he wasn't the right guy to do the work. And, And God said, Moses, Moses, be quiet and go do what I told you to do. Parents, you've heard that before, right? Come out of your own mouth. And Moses, through the hand of God upon him, did what? He led the people out of Egyptian slavery and to the river, to the promised land. He's known as the greatest prophet in the scriptures. So for us to see that abbreviated genealogy in the first four or five verses, and then for us to understand historically who Ezra was to the Jewish people, should hearken our attention To understand that God is doing something here that supersedes not just history, but even the individual of Ezra himself. Jewish tradition says this about Ezra. More than any other, he was the one who stamped Israel with the lasting character as the people of God's book the people of God's book. You say, well, why wasn't Moses that? Well, he was the guy that was writing the book, right? And so the text that God used Moses to write is the very text that he used the second Moses to call the people back to the word of God for their understanding, their knowledge, their obedience, yea, to center their whole life. You see, Ezra's life was distinctive because he gave his full attention and energy to God's law. And because he gave first priority to God's law, the refrain of his life was the recognition of God's hand resting upon him. Resting upon him. What does it mean, briefly, what does it mean for God's hand to rest on a person's life? If this is stated three times about Ezra's life, it's probably at least important for us to understand it for him to know who he was. And does it have any relevance for us today for who we are? Well, the hand of the Lord is a reference specifically to the strength and the power of God. But for the hand of the Lord to rest upon somebody, is, it denotes a providential favor and grace from God for them. And so what it's telling us here is that the life of Ezra was the life of a man whose favor from God was evident and the power of God was evident in his working. It's what we come to see later in the New Testament and what might be more commonly referred to today as the anointing of God being upon him. 
it was evident when, when Ezra walked in the room, it's not that everybody said Ezra's great, but when Ezra walked in the room, everybody said God is great. That's the kind of influence he had. And it revealed most of all for us, not just that Ezra was a man who was greatly blessed and everybody wanted to be like Ezra. That's not the reverberation, but rather when Ezra walked into the room, everybody said, God is great. Because what Ezra was doing and what was known of his life, everyone recognized God is the one who is working here. And all that was accomplished was not because of the greatness of Ezra but because of the greatness of God's hand at work in his life. You see, friends, when you recognize God's work being done, when his favor is bestowed upon your life, when you, when you walk into a room, you don't have a prayer of walking out of in the way you think you ought to, you need to, or is best for you. And what you actually walk out with is something far greater than you could have ever imagined. You know in that moment, God did that. I dare not steal any glory or praise from him. One quick story I'll tell you. When we were first preparing to plant our church 18 years ago, uh, we were remodeling a building so we could gather for worship. And um, as is typical, we had zero money. <laughs> I mean, we, had, we were just in core group phase development. We had a few people giving, but there was no bank account that said we can get this done. All I had was a couple of guys who were willing to go to banks with me and ask, can we borrow money? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing, and I think we need to think about changing this. Actually, this is in this world today, it is changing. Uh, every time you go ask a bank for money, they want to ask what you've got that's worth that. How dare they? They don't want to just give you money. That's the part that seems to be changing today. All right, there's a little humor in here. Got to be a little lighthearted, friends. We got to take it. You know. So we went to nine different banks in about a two-week period of time. Let me tell you what was happening. Frank Clark was my right-hand man at the time, and when he, we walked in, everybody go, Dr. Clark! Like they were nervous about a test that they had just taken. We're trying to find out. He was a professor of business and finance and economics at uh, SMS in the day and taught. Uh, of the nine bankers that we sat in front of, I guarantee you six of them addressed him as Dr. Clark. And they sat up a little straighter like, did you find out about that test? And, you know, I mean, like there was a, an immediate, he was like, hello, you know. Uh, and No, I'm not here to talk about your, uh, your degree plan being taken away from you or anything like that. But, I mean, they, they kind of got nervous. And the men, they would listen. And I, I, get, I grant you half of them were like, Oh, Dr. Clark, you, you know how well I would like to make you happy, <laughs> you know, but we can't do this. You have no record of giving. You have no track record of, of, as a church of offerings or anything like that. We would love to help, but we can't. Eight banks. Number nine we walked into. And we, we stopped. There were three of us. We stopped before we walked in and we prayed as we'd done with all the other banks Lord, we need a miracle. <laughs> oh, we've heard no. We know what that sounds like. We're not afraid of hearing no again, but we need a yes, you know. We walked in. As soon as we walked in, the, the guy who it was a smaller bank and the guy who was the president of that branch said, Lane, how are you doing? And he's a guy that I had just met a few weeks before, kind of uh, circumstantially and happenstantially, which I don't believe in either one of those, but I'm uh, just letting you know. We, we, we encountered each other and he said, what's going on? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a church over here and I was pointing over to the building and, you, you know, we, 
we don't have all the money we need to finish the building and we really feel like we're supposed to be doing this. And yeah, and he listened to me kind of him haul around why, why he wouldn't want to give us the money either. And I don't blame you. We've heard every good reason. And it's fine for you to tell us no as well. And he said, well, how much do you need? I said, well, I just need a line of credit, about $100,000, $150,000. He said, okay, if you'll come tomorrow, I'll have the papers drawn up for you to sign. Well, we've got a giving sheet here that we've been keeping for the last two weeks, if you'd like to see it. I think it shows a lot of, uh, it shows a lot of ability here. No, I don't need to see it. Come back tomorrow, I'll have the papers drawn up. <laughs> We walked out of the door and we stopped again. We said, okay, we, we prayed before we went into every one. Friends, this wasn't about a solid economic decision on that bank's part. It made no sense. And that's why we stopped and said, God did this. When you have a moment like 27 and 28, those verses teach us here. You can't not give God the credit. Because you have no explanation for why what just happened actually happened. And if you had spoken anymore, you probably would have just messed it up. But this is because of what God did. That's what happens when you recognize God's work being done. That's what Ezra is standing in awe of in verses 27 and 28. His favor is bestowed upon him. His power is displayed in his life. And, and in this instant, he realized it's not about a person. And that's what you and I must recognize. It's not about Ezra. It's a recognition that God himself is the one that was working here. It's God's hand that is working in the lives of his people. It is God's hand who is acting on behalf of his people, providing what his people need. And so I cause, uh, or I pause rather for a minute to call our attention to ask this question. Do you have or do you even want the hand of God to rest on your life? Has there ever been a moment of pause when when you felt like you were at the end of your rope or at the end of the situation or you had nowhere else to turn and you said, God, if you don't act, we're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Or has life just always managed to lead you in the direction where you could control, you could manage, and you could figure out enough to get you to the next place? You see, friends, what I propose to you today is that God wants you to live a life that if his hand doesn't intervene, what God wants to do and what he know or what you know he wants to do in your life won't be possible unless he does. Might be with your marriage. God, we've done all that we know to do to save this relationship. To make it what we believe you want it to be. It might be for your children's life. Lord, you're going to have to act here. I've said everything that I know to say more than I care to say it. And it still hasn't been heard. Might be for your job. Might be for a friend, for a friend's life. You see, God wants his hand to rest upon your life. In every area. So that when you walk into a room, people don't go, you are great. 
but God is great. That is God's will for every follower of Jesus Christ, according to his word. And so our message today is not be like Ezra, though he is a noble model for us. The lesson for each of us is that we should understand God's will is that the center of our life be his word, that his purposes might be served in this world. The hand of God rests on the life centered on the word of God to serve God's purpose for his glory. You see, friends, God works by his word. By his word. How do we know this? Well, when God works in his people, when God works among his people, and when God works through his people, he sends his word as the center of all of his work. So all the work of God is accomplished by the living word of God. What does John 1 tell us? But that the word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. That the word of God willingly laid down his life for us and rose and is now seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns not over all important things but over all of creation. And in the midst of ruling and reigning over all creation, the word of God also tells us one more tidbit of fairly important information. He's got time to intercede for his children. That makes it beautiful beyond imagination. You see, this is the central message of Ezra. If you want to know God, you must know his word. If you want to know God, you must know his word. It may seem obvious, but it's by no means so. I began talking about this more than a decade ago as I looked back in some of my own sermons But the absence of God's word in the midst of the modern day 21st century American church is becoming more and more evident. It's called as a formal topic the biblical illiteracy of the American church. 12 years ago in 2010, the Barna Research Group did a a massive study of American Christianity and the Church of America. And the first of its six mega-themes that it derived from its research was this. Biblical and theological illiteracy. That the church has no idea what the Word of God says. Does that mean every individual? No. It's talking about the general overview of the church. You see, the lack of biblical literacy has led to a greater tolerance of a vast array of moral and spiritual behaviors as well as ideologies and philosophies that are purported and principally held by the world. Many notable scholars have been sounding this alarm far longer than I have and with far greater accuracy and understanding even. But the American church must address this crisis not by a new creative way to do church, which is almost always our way to do something. And there's no greater week in the world to see it than this week when all the crazies pull out all the stops to put the great sham wow in front of everybody. And friends, I tell you, we don't have anything better to do. We don't have anything better to offer. We have no greater glory to behold than the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason we're in the room right now. 
What does God do? He calls his people to personally return to his way by living a life centered on his word. Here's what Ezra provides a helpful example for us. How did he center his life on God's word? It tells us this. He set his heart. He set his heart. To set the heart just simply means that we determine for our own lives to to fix our whole life on God's word. You see, centering your whole life on God's word means setting your heart to be consumed by God's word. And so I, I make this appeal to you today. I, I extend this, this, this invitation to center your life on the word of God that the hand of God might rest upon your life. That what we see in the life of Ezra is not just unique to only Ezra. It is unique to only God. And it is the will of God not to use you in the identical way that he used Ezra. That would require a time warp. But to use you for the same glory and the same purpose for which he used Ezra. And he ordains to use each and every one of his children. You say, well, I'm not looking for a big platform or the spotlight. Great. God's not interested in that. But he is interested in using you for the life that he's given you. And in the way he's redeemed you and the place, the network and the people among which he's put you. I want to offer to you three distinct characteristics that we must set our heart on to center our life on God's word. Characteristic number one is this. Set your heart on a commitment to know God's word. Set your heart on a commitment to know God's word. The creator of all things reveals himself to us in his word. You see, friends, that's the reason that the authority and the inspiration of Scripture should be the first tenet of any church's core tenets of of what they believe and teach. Why? Because without the Scriptures, we do not know God. I don't care how great your experience has been, how moved emotionally you have been, or how intellectual you are about all the surrounding historical, theological, or otherwise circumstances of the Bible. Without the Bible... We cannot know God because only through the Bible has God revealed himself to us. That's why we don't put our tradition or even the teachings and the preachings of this church, we don't put them next to the scripture. The scripture is our highest authority for faith, what we teach, and practice, how we live. You see, in the scriptures, we come to understand God and how he works. We see a righteousness that is revealed from first to last. You go from beginning to end of my life? No, from first to last, like the Alpha and Omega kind of first to last, from eternity unto eternity that is without end, there is an authority that comes. What kind of authority? The kind of authority that holds the king's heart in the hand of God, who is the creator of all things, and steers it in the way he wants it to go. That's the kind of authority that the, the word of God reveals reveals to us. There is a power that works through us for the purposes of God to be accomplished not only in our life but through our life into the world. A truth that comes to us from God that scripture tells us renews our mind and reveals to us how we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of his eternal son which is light. We are list, or we are learned in the ways of understanding how his love abides in us. 
to strengthen and sustain our heart in the daily discouragements and the attacks that are ever present upon us. We learn of his blessing and how he has revealed that to us to bestow it upon us to make glad the soul. All of this is in Ezra's testimony. Where did he learn it from? From the law of God that he has set his heart on knowing it, on obeying it, on teaching it. Friends, you may not master all of God's word to the extent that Ezra did. But a high commitment to know his word is important. In God's word, he reveals all we need for life and faith. And so I encourage you today to set your heart to know God's word by beginning with a simple commitment to read it regularly. Just a very simple, I couldn't understand that. No, none of us could. But praise be to God, he sent his spirit to illumine every word of it. All you got to do is listen. That's all you got to do. And the spirit will be faithful to speak. What do I mean by regularly reading? As much as necessary to get the word in you. You see, the main aim that I'm shooting for here is to make sure that what you take from your reading actually takes hold in you. It might be a nugget, it might be a larger portion, but whatever it is, that until its roots have sunk in and it's taking hold, you press into it. So it resonates in your mind and it settles in your heart. This is why the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 said, set your heart on things above, set your mind on things above. How do you do that? By reading the Word. And a regular reading of the Word leads us to meditation. You say, but I thought meditation is what other religions do. Well, they use the same word, but it's a different practice. You see, all other religions meditate to empty themselves. And all of us would agree there's a lot less of the world that would be better for us if we were more empty from it. But you are created in such a way not to live empty, but to operate on full. So what God's word does is he fills us to purge out what is not from him that we might be filled with all of who he is. And that's what meditating does. It permeates into the heart so that it soaks into the soul. And this is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we behold in the reading of God's word that God not only addresses the issues and the circumstances and the details and the decisions of life, but he addresses the way that we are thinking thinking about them and feeling about them and the motivations in approaching them and he speaks to us to look at them not the way that the world says they are but in accordance to what he says they are you go you get all that from reading yes and you will too if you'll listen to the spirit leads us to study to comprehend Not just to know what it says. We've got a lot of people who can quote a verse or two when they need to, but they're doing it like a magic mantra. Like, I can do this and God will do for me. That's not the way God's word works. We not only know what it says, but we come to comprehend what it means. And as we comprehend what it means, we begin to understand how it applies to our life. Why? Because we not only see it in its practical and pragmatic application, but we begin to see it working in the depths and changing us in the very soul and core and marrow of our bones. You see, in the word of God, he reveals himself that you might know his word to guard your life against sin and walk in the light of his eternal wisdom. That's why reading the word is so important. 
You need a simple plan that includes when you'll read, a time of day, where you'll read, a place. If you have a place, you'll be so much more faithful, I promise you. A schedule. You know, some of you are saying, I'm going to read the Bible this week. I'm going to start with Leviticus. No, don't do that. Start with the Gospel of John. Maybe just read John chapter 1 all week long. Read it slowly. Read it, reread it again. Let it soak in. It's not about volume, friends. It's about depth. It's not about occurrences or how many times you read it. It's about how deeply it begins to permeate in you. When you commit to God's word by giving him the first part of your day, you'll find him faithful throughout your whole day and your whole life. Characteristic one, set your heart on a commitment to know God's word. Characteristic number two, set your heart on a desire to obey. A desire to obey. You cannot and you will not recognize God's hand of power or blessing on your life until you obey his word. And the less intake of God's word, the weaker the desire to obey becomes. Why? Because God's word doesn't just give us the content, it gives us the motivation to do what he commands. Obeying God is the most glorious activity of our life. To walk by faith in the way and the wisdom of our Lord. You see, another great problem for Christians, not in our day and time alone, but surely in this day and time, is what I would call the obedience gap. You've heard me talk about the obedience gap before. The obedience gap is the difference between what you know and what you obey from Scripture. So the, 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 the amount of knowledge you have and the level of obedience. Now, this is a spiritual measurement for sure, and it requires the Spirit to help us in this. But the difference between the knowledge of the Word and our obedience to the Word is referred to as an obedience gap. You see, the truth is, until we obey, our knowledge is incomplete. It's just a set of data bytes. That's all it is. Until faith enacts our obedience for a transforming power and, and the renewal of our minds. And, and incidentally, one way we avoid the gap inadvertently widens it. One of the ways that Christian culture actually makes the obedience gap bigger is they go, well, I'm just going to study God's word more. And so it's like we just eat faster believing that it's going to be better for us because we'll get more into us, right? No, it doesn't matter how many gummy worms you eat. They're never going to be good for you. It's just rubber. That's all it is. I don't care how many flavors they put on it, right? No, the, the obedience gap is not overcome by going, well, if one Bible study didn't do it, I've got to do six. And, and then you realize, I'm doing all this Bible study, where's God? Truth is intended to be absorbed in the heart for transformation, not just stored in the mind for, for uh, recollection. And obedience to God's word it's not about completing a task list. It's about walking in relationship with God. Obedience turns data into desire because we experience his faithfulness. We recognize the blessing of his hand and we have our life filled with his love. You know what? If you set your heart to study God's word and, and to obey it, you know what you'll find? 
the first service was, was shocked by this, you'll find the one instance in the scriptures where God's unfaithfulness is revealed. Do you know where that's at? That's a trick question. Study it. It's not there. That's all I'm saying. Listen to the psalmist. Chapter 119. And listen to this progression he provides. Verse 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. You hear the reality, that's reality right there. It's truth and reality. God, I want to give my whole life to you. I want to seek you with my whole heart. Help me, guard me from myself. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 11, then verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your words. Listen, friends, set your heart on the desire to obey God's word. Why? Because it is God's will for you. And God will prove faithful to you in every word that he has given to you. The third characteristic follows from our passage in Psalm 119, and it's this. Set your heart with zeal to share God's word. You know, knowing God's word produces a greater zeal to share him with others. And the purpose of all of our study, for Ezra, it was to teach the law. You may end up teaching it, but at the very least, we're all designed to share it. It's not just about a planned presentation. Rather, it's about a shared conversation. And our zeal to share increases and it deepens the more we talk about it. If you look in the New Testament, you see this in the apostles in the book of Acts. Every time they testified to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his resurrection, their heart was emboldened with greater courage to do it again. Sometimes we wait on boldness before we go and share. And God says, "Ah, that's reverse direction. Go share and boldness will come. You see, friends, the simplest message of personally encountering God shared regularly will always produce the strongest zeal for God in the heart. Why? Because that's the way God works. That's what happens when the hand of God is resting upon your life. It's not just about what you can do for him. It's about what he's already done for you in Jesus Christ and what he's about doing in your heart and your life. God wants your life centered on his word Centered on his word. Where God's word resides in you. Always reflects where you are with God. And as you prepare to leave today, I ask you this. Where are you with God? Are you walking in his way? Because you're learning it. You're knowing it from his word. Or you feel distant. Disconnected. Friends, God awaits you today to meet you with a word of love, a word of grace, a word of mercy, a word of forgiveness and cleansing. 
If you turn away from all the things that you've walked with and turn to the only one who can truly walk you into the light of life. Let's pray.